Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We're currently studying in the book of James, Faith That Works. For more information, go to our website, EdenWorshipCenter.com. We're going to be finishing up the first chapter of the book of James this morning. If you're visiting with us, we've been going through the book of James verse by verse, which is, is what we usually do. We just go through one book of the Bible at a time, uh, preaching through verse by verse. And, and so we've been in James now for a few weeks, and James at the beginning of the book here has really been focusing on preparing the Christian for trials, preparing the Christian for temptations. And, and really what, what we've been seeing in these last few weeks is how should we think when trials and temptations come our way. James is a book about how to think like a Christian. He's giving us a framework for how a Christian should think. So how should we think when trials and temptations come? How should we respond when trials and temptations come? And and James is concerned that we would think correctly and we would respond correctly to all things, but in particular, trials and temptations that we would do so in a way that's distinctly Christian or biblical. And, and what James has said is, when trials come your way, when temptations, when suffering comes your way, count it all joy. And, and so human wisdom would tell us that's a completely unrealistic thing to say. Right? One, one of the great slogans of atheism is that Christianity or religion is the opiate of the masses. You're just blindly trying to tell yourself there's something good happening here. And, and, you know, from a human standpoint, that's the way it is. And the only way that this becomes realistic at all is if we believe that our Heavenly Father has designed trials for us as a gift of His grace. That's the only way we can count it joy. Nothing else makes sense. That God has designed these things, allowed them entrance into our life, so that he could do in us what he intends to do. And so in that way, Christians think differently than anyone else thinks. We see trials, we see temptations. The biblical consistent message of the trials and temptations that come into the life of a Christian is, these are for your good. And so in that way, Christians see the world differently than anyone else does. The typical human response to temptation, to trial, to suffering, to the things that, that come into our life that we see as negative, the things that, that we don't want, the typical response is why? Why is this happening to me? Why would God allow this? We, we maybe have all of us at some point ask those questions. Why is this happening? Why would God allow this into my life? And yet James would instruct us to think very differently about our trials, to think in a way that is, is biblical about that. There's, maybe you've seen on the news that this guy who like, shot Osama bin Laden came forward and has been telling his story. Have any, any of you seen that? Telling it with some colorful language, but telling it nonetheless. And, and he was a part of this group, SEAL Team 6. That's the group that went in and, and raided the compound where Osama bin Laden was at. And, and it's interesting that as he tells his story and he tells what's been happening, one of the things he doesn't include and no story that's come out of that has included, that could be those, those men raiding Osama bin Laden. That could be the men storming the beach at Normandy on D-Day as, as, as the, the boats pulled up to the shore and the gates swung down and the men began to flood out onto that beach for a great and brutal battle. One of the stories you never hear is of these men turning to a chaplain right at the last second and saying, why is this happening to me? When those men jumped out of the helicopter to go after Osama bin Laden, they didn't real quick go, why is this happening to me? Why has God allowed this to come into my life? Well, why not? 
Why is that not a part of the story when they're about to face something horrific, something terrible? Why, why is that not part of the story? Well, the reason is because this is what they've been training for. They know why it's happening. They know what it's there for. This is their moment. Those men getting ready to jump out of that helicopter into an incredibly dangerous situation to get one of the greatest terrorists in the world, the most wanted man in the world, they weren't thinking, why is this happening? They were thinking, this is my time. This is my moment. This is what I'm here to do. This is the job that I have prepared for. Well, in the same way, James wants to shift the thinking of Christians on our trials and our suffering to be a lot more like those guys than it is like the world who says, why? Why is this happening to me? James wants us to face trials differently. James wants us to respond to trials by saying, this is what God has been preparing me for. When that trial comes my way, this is what God has been preparing me. This is what the means of grace that God has placed in my life. This is what all that reading of my Bible was preparing me for. This is what all those Sunday mornings sitting under the preached word of God were preparing me for. This is what the Christian brothers and sisters that God has surrounded my life, this is what it was preparing me for when trials come our way. To prepare me to be faithful in this time. To prepare me to be faithful in the midst of trials, in the midst of temptation, in the midst of suffering, so that my faith would be proved true. So that the Christian response then is very different from the world's response. And that's what James has been sort of these first few weeks we've spent in, in the first chapter of James. That's what James has sort of been leading us towards. You should have a very different response than what your human gut response to, to a trial is, that we ought to think like Christians in the face of these. Now, now, in today's passage, at the end of chapter 1, James appears to be changing the subject a little bit from facing trials to distinguishing true Christianity from false Christianity. But... Uh, He's not actually changing the subject at all. It's entirely connected. This idea of how to face trials and what is a true Christian and what is not a true Christian, they're, they're very connected. And so let's just start here by looking at what James says. We're in verse 19 of James chapter 1. Let's stand up together. James chapter 1, verse 19. If you don't have a Bible, there are going to be words up on the screen, but we also have some Bibles in the back, and if you don't have a, a good Bible, uh, we want you to take one of those home with you. But let's start in, in verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like the man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and goes away, and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts... He will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for your word. God, I thank you that this word is alive. 
God, that this word is, is your voice speaking to your people. I thank you for the great promise in your word that your sheep will hear your voice. And so we pray, God, that by your Holy Spirit, you'd give us ears to hear you this morning as you speak to us. We pray, God, that, that you would challenge us, Lord, that you would point out areas of, of sin in our lives, that you would uh, put a steel in our backbone to live for you, to live courageous lives as Christians. I pray, God, that you would help us to be obedient followers of Christ. And I pray, God, that uh, the words of my mouth, that the meditations of my heart, that those will be pleasing to you, that, that you'd glorify yourself in this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Here's the big idea today. It's possible to claim to be a Christian and not actually be one. That, that's what James is talking to about. If we had to sum it up in one sentence, James is telling us it's possible to claim that you're a Christian and not actually be one. Now, over the course of, of, of the book of James, James is going to make this point in all kinds of different ways, using all kinds of different examples. This is a repeated theme in the book of James. It's possible to claim to be a Christian and not actually be one. And, and it's actually a repeated theme throughout the entire Bible. But now, what's the connection between this, the connection between a true Christian and a false Christian, between the person who's lying to himself and fooling himself and the person who has genuine saving faith? What is the connection there between that and trials? Well, the connection is this. James is teaching us consistently through this book that trials actually reveal our heart. They actually show us who we are. They show us uh, what is going on inside of us? When trials come, it shows us, do I trust God's sovereignty and God's goodness or not? And so he's already been talking to us about how the new birth changes us. So now he naturally transitions into this discussion of the difference between true Christianity and false Christianity, between true godliness and false godliness, true conversion, false conversion, true saving faith, false saving faith. However you want to put it, this is what James is showing us. He's saying there's the real and there's the false. And some people who have the false think they have the real. And James is, is very concerned to not let us get away with that. He, he wants us to be aware of it. Uh, and so as he talks about these things, he's going to teach us three things at least in this passage. But three things we're going to highlight. And that's this. True saving faith permeates everything in our lives. Second, that true saving faith not only hears God's word, it does God's word. And third, then, that true saving faith has a result. It has a fruit. It results in personal holiness and public morality. And so we'll just kind of dive in here, going back through these verses. That, looking at this first big idea, true saving faith permeates everything in life. So, so in verse 19 here, he says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So, so saving faith permeates everything in life, even to our behavior and our relationships. In other words, what I mean by it, it permeates everything in life, is we can't compartmentalize it. We can't put our faith and our Christianity in this box over here. This is my Christian life, and over here, this is my Dutch housing life. When I'm working in the trailer factory, Dutch housing doesn't even exist anymore, so that was... It kind of does. 
it's as close a picture to hell as we have here on this earth. <laughs> Dutch housing. The only difference is that Jesus rules hell, not Satan, and at Dutch housing it looked a lot more like Satan was ruling hell. <laughs> For our sanctification, not helpful. Not helpful. I'm sorry. So, so we can't compartmentalize our faith. This is my Christian me, and this is my nobody's looking me. We can't have that true saving faith will, is going to get into every little nook and cranny of our life. Every part is going to be thoroughly permeated by it. All of our life, all of our relationships. So we can't have some areas that are affected by faith and others that are not. Not if the faith is genuine. If the faith is genuine, and again, it's important, we've, we've mentioned this a few times, the way James talks, James isn't really worried here that we're going to get the wrong idea and start thinking we earn our salvation. James wants to, it's, it's the other side of the coin from what the Apostle Paul taught us, and we spent that over a year in the book of Romans, that man is justified by faith alone. But James says, and here's how you know if you've got that faith. You're going to do these things. And so it's important for us to keep that in perspective, lest we start to think, man, i got to get to work if I want to be a Christian. Uh, and so, so, so we can't have some areas affected by faith and not others. Saving faith will permeate every area of the Christian's life. So he says, let, the per- let each person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, And so one of the ways we can assess our claim to Christianity, if you're in the room right now and you claim to be a Christian, you say, yes, I'm a Christian, I'm going to heaven. Well, one of the ways we can assess that claim uh, as to whether it's true or not, James says here, is in our behavior, in the way we are in our relationships. Um, Listening is a relational activity. Speaking is a relational activity. Anger is even most often a relational activity. And so James says, these things then are evidences of the new birth, or they're evidences of the lack of new birth. And so in other words, the, the evidence that you're a Christian is you have a new life. The new life is the evidence that you are a Christian. Our speech Our speech should evidence that we have new life. Our listening ought to evidence that we have new life. Our control of our emotions reflect that we have a new life. Even our emotional disposition and temperament have been changed by the saving work of Jesus Christ. When he took my dead heart out and he put a new living heart in, that changed everything about me. Now, now before we get too far into this message, the goal of the message today is not to heap condemnation on us, You might be sitting there at some point, though, and say, is he trying to make me question my salvation? Big time. It's really important for us to ask those questions. It really, really is. So so I won't go so far as to say I'm not trying to do that. But but I'm not trying to get us to look and go, well, I'm not perfect, so I guess that means I'm not really a Christian. There's only one record of any human being who lived perfectly, and that's Jesus Christ. That's why all of our hope is in him. There's no Christian in this book who lived perfectly. Their their sins and shortcomings are played out in glorious detail for us. And so this is not a call to you have to be perfect. It is a call to let's examine the fruit that's growing on our tree. And so why does James talk about these things? Why does James go immediately when he starts to say, here's how we can distinguish. Here's one strain of evidence we can look at to see if we're genuinely a Christian or not. 
Why, why does he go to these relational things right away? Well, it's because this is where we see the measure of our Christianity. So often we, we, we are expected to give ourselves and give other people a pass because they go, I'm a very spiritual person. I believe in Jesus. And in, in our culture, there's nothing less popular than to point out, you say you're a follower of Jesus, and yet you don't follow anything he said. You're disobedient to everything he said, and, and you are willfully so. Uh, that, that's considered completely unacceptable in our culture today. And yet James says that's what you're supposed to do to see if your faith is real or if your faith is fake and you're fooling yourself. And so the measure of our Christianity is our life. It's not our quiet time or our time in church on Sunday morning or our time in Bible studies or, or small groups or going to a conference. That's not the time where we see the measure of our faith. That's the time where we're riding high. We see the measure of our faith in our life, in our day-to-day. We see it more on a Thursday afternoon than we do on a Sunday morning. In our character, in our responses to things, in our relationships. So, so spiritual life is not something that we practice privately. Now, there are certainly private components to spiritual life, or there should be. There should be those times where you're alone with God, and, and you're practicing this sort of personal, private, spiritual life. But spiritual life doesn't happen at appointed times. It's all of our life. One of the ways that we fool ourselves into uh, being, believing that we have this saving faith that James says you might not have is because we set a few appointments, and as long as we keep those, we feel pretty good about things. Well, I'm in church just about every Sunday. I must be doing good. That's not where we see spiritual life lived out. It's lived out all the time. It manifests itself in every part of our lives. And James here is pointing to our relationships, and he says, start there. Start by looking there. Look at your relationships and, and, and see. And James picks out one particular example to diagnose a Christian life that's out of line. In verse 20, he says, The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, James could have used all kinds of different examples for this. He picks this one out because this one hurts all of us. <laughs> this is one that we all look at our lives and go, Okay, uh, this, is, this is probably me that James is talking to. So what's James saying? Well, selfish anger is a sign that there's something deeply wrong with you. And so it's good this morning to examine our lives and start where James starts and say, what what does my anger say about me? Not all anger is sin. There's some righteous anger. There's some things that should make us profoundly angry as Christians. But a quick-tempered, selfish, uncontrolled anger shows that we have a lack of trust in God and that we don't love other people. It shows that I have elevated myself to the place of king and God and ruler and the one that everybody else should bow to. So, so when we stand in line and we start to get increasingly mad because how dare they put me in a line? How dare you, Walmart, have a line this long? You must not know how important I am. If you're one of those people who every time, like you're a great person and then you get in the car... And the horns come out, and all of a sudden, you're waving to people with four less fingers than you do at other times. That's what James is talking about. James is saying that, that tendency in you is a sign that something's wrong. There's something wrong. 
So, so our emotional life, our speech, our listening to others, our relationships, they all provide an indication of our sanctification. Sanctification means Christ-likeness. We're growing in Christ-likeness. We're being changed into the image of God. And one of the ways that we see whether we're being changed in the image of God or not is when we look at our relationships. We look at our speech. We look at our listening. We look at our anger. We look at those things and we see, am I growing in Christ-likeness or am I not? Because here's the thing. The Bible says you will. If God has saved you, saving faith comes with some things in the package, and one of them is we're transformed increasingly into the likeness of Christ. So can you look at your life and see that the track record is you're growing in godliness. You're growing in grace. These are the things that show that are a test of whether our faith is genuine or not. So, so throughout this morning, the rest of our time together, I do want to, this is not going to be our favorite sermon we've ever had. It was definitely not my favorite sermon to put together. There were numerous times throughout the week that I thought, probably should just have Matt preach it. This is not, I'm an awful, awful, awful person. Last night, I dreamt, probably shouldn't, probably shouldn't preach this one. I had a dream last night that while preaching this sermon this morning, someone stood up and went, hey, I know you. Okay? I know you. This is one of those messages. I want us to question ourselves over and over and over. Paul says it like this, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Now, I don't, I'm not advocating for this kind of Christianity that asks Jesus into his heart 4,928 times over the course of the year. Because you're just, every time something bad happens, you're like, I'm not saved. Something bad. I'm not talking about that. I am talking about examining ourselves and doing so regularly to see, am I bearing fruit in keeping with godliness? I think this is one of the means, this is one of the tools that God will use in the life of the Christian to produce godliness in us is when we examine ourselves and we feel like I might be failing this test. Are you tracking with me? God uses that to change your heart, to sanctify you. And so, so examine yourselves. Some, some in this room, are this person James is talking about? You're fooling yourself. And, and I say this with love, with as much humility as I am capable, you're fooling yourself. You're the person James is talking about. You call yourself a Christian, but if you had to give evidence for it, there would be none. There would be no evidence. That's what James is talking about throughout the whole book. Here's the evidence. If someone accused you of being a Christian, here's how you could prove it. Here's how they could convict you of being a Christian. And, and, and there's some in this room who, who you, you believe you're a Christian, you say you're a Christian, and there's no evidence for it whatsoever. And if that's you, my goal this morning is not to point my finger at you and tell you how you're the worst. My goal this morning is to say there's nothing you can do to fix it on your own. There's only one remedy. Run to Jesus Christ and his cross. There is hope. If, if you're sitting here right now going, I'm kind of mad at him. I think he says I'm fooling myself. And I might be. If that's you, 
That is the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit convicting you, which means God will have you. God will have you. God will save you. If you come to him, if you turn from your sin, if you put your trust in Jesus, God will not turn you away. There's other people in the room who probably heard those words and they just went right off you. They just, just sort of brushed right off your, your shoulders and, and kept moving. That, that's a sign that the Holy Spirit's not convicting you. So I'm not going to try to talk you into it this morning. It's all the work of God. It's all the work of the Holy Spirit. But if you're feeling that, don't go the route of condemnation. Go the route of throwing all your hope and trust in Christ. Are you tracking with me? That's the remedy for this. If that's you, there's nothing you can do to fix yourself. The problem is this. The Christian life is not a series of resolutions to do better. The Christian life is not turning over a new leaf. The Christian life is not the latest and greatest of self-help remedies. The Christian life is the recognition that we don't have the power. We have not got the ability to change ourselves, and so we need to look somewhere else. And the gospel is this. The only somewhere else that there is to look is to Jesus Christ and his cross. See, that's true Christianity, not this thing that says, here's, here's some things you can do to make yourself feel happier. I'm convinced that messages that are being preached in Christian books and in pulpits all across this country are messages that are fooling us into being the people James is warning us that we might be. They're just reaffirming for us, no, you're good. You're a good person. You're cool. Everything's good with you. And James would scream to us, you are fooling yourself. Trust in Christ and Christ alone if there's no evidence in your life that you're a Christian. You see, it's when we renounce our own ability to change ourselves and we run to him for grace to change us, it's then that we find salvation and the grace to change. Salvation doesn't come because we think I can do good enough if I just try harder. Salvation comes when we put all of our hope, all of our trust in him and there's no salvation for the person who thinks they don't need it. The gospel message begins with the bad news that we are in need of salvation. So if God has convicted you that you're fooling yourself, that's where you need to go. You need to begin by going to Jesus and not trying to fix yourself. For others of you in the room, you are a Christian. You can look and say, God saved me 10 years ago and I am not the man I was. I'm not perfect, but I've been changed But you don't yet think like a Christian. You don't think the way James tells us to think. You don't look at your trials like that and say, this is what God has been preparing me for. This is what God's going to use in my life to grow me into his image. You look at it and say, God, why would you do this to me? Your view of Christianity is unbiblical. You need a new mindset. Maybe you've been practicing that sort of compartmentalized Christianity. Like, I really am a Christian. I really want to be faithful to the Lord. Also, when I'm at work, just understand, work me, you wouldn't want to be around. I talk to people like that sometimes, and they'll tell me that, you know, like, yeah, you wouldn't hear, want to hear me at work. Well, why? Guess, guess who does hear you at work? God. <laughs> And so you practice that sort of compartmentalized Christianity. You do some things that are spiritual. You're here this morning, for instance. You may read your Bible and, and pray, and, and yet it's not permeating the entirety of your life. 
Some in this room, you, you may be keenly aware, even in this moment, that you have some significant deficiencies in your character and your relationships. Some of the things that have already been said, you've already had to be tempted with, should I get really mad at him and just decide I hate him? Or should I confess my sin to God? You're kind of dealing with that. You've noticed, you're aware that there are some serious deficiencies in your character, in your relationships. Maybe you have that selfish anger that James is talking about. Maybe it's that lack of appropriate speech or appropriate listening that James is talking about. Well, then James' words should move us to repentance. James' words should, instead of making us feel like we should quit, they should make us feel like we want to change, like we want to grow, like we want to be transformed. And so if that's you, go to God, the Holy Spirit. Ask him to renew your mind. Ask him to give you new priorities. Ask him to help you turn from your sin and live a life of faith. That, that you could worship God in all of your life. And I've already told you, it's worth saying again, this week preparing this message has been tough for me because I'm very aware of how far I miss the mark so often. There's times where, where, where I, I get depressed really easily, and when I get depressed, I just don't want to talk. I don't want to deal with my family. Uh, and, and I will go from happy dad, who's usually kind of unflappable in the family, to all of a sudden I'm yelling at my kids. Why am I doing that? And then I'm sitting there going, why am I doing this? I'm 100% in the wrong here, but it feels too good. I'm going to ride this baby at least another 10 minutes. And I'm telling you, I'm so aware that that's a sign there's something seriously wrong. The good news is, that's all of us. That's all of us. That, 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 if this were not the case in my heart, Jesus Christ wouldn't have needed to die. I would have been all right. That's all of us. So I'm not pointing my finger at you. Believe me, it's been pointed at me all week long to the point that it, it, it's been hard to sleep sometimes. I, I'm so aware. But see, here's the encouraging news. The Christian life is not the work of a moment. It's the work of a lifetime. God never promised me I'd be perfect in 2014 at the age of 38. God promised to steadily transform me from one glory to the next into his likeness because he saved me and that one day I'll be perfected. It just won't happen until I die. So James is calling us to grow in grace, to manifest the new life, not just in private but in all of life. That's the first thing James is teaching us in this passage. True faith permeates everything in life. Secondly, true faith not only hears God's word, it does God's word. Verse 21, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and then goes away and at once forgets what it was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And so here's what James is saying. Godliness is not just agreeing with what the Bible says. It's not just reading it and going, yeah, I, yes, I agree with it. I think that God's word is perfect and without error, and I believe everything that it says. That, that in itself is not godliness. Godliness is living what God's word says. It's obedience to what God's word says. 
And so that involves both a negative and a positive activity. In the negative, verse 21, the first part of it says, uh, turn from sin. Right? Put away filthiness. Put away rampant wickedness. So, so in the negative, we, we turn from sin. We put away. We get rid of it. Right? Paul used the language of putting it to death. We, we turn from sin. And then at the same time, in the positive, the second half of the verse, verse 21, it says that we receive the implanted word of God. Implanted means it takes root in us. And so this is, this is a fulfillment of a promise that's made in the Old Testament. God had made all of these covenants with man. He, he starts with, with uh, Abraham. He just kind of plucks this pagan wandering person up and he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to be your God. Your, your descendants are going to be my people. And, he, and, and it moves to the nation of Israel. And God makes this covenant with Israel. And he says, uh, if you will be faithful to this covenant, you'll be my prized, my treasured possession in all the earth. And then there, there's all of this sin in Israel to where God says, you know what? The covenant's done. It's over. Israel, you are not my covenant people, you've broken the covenant, and they're just left in wandering. And then God makes this promise in Jeremiah 31. There's a new covenant that's going to come. There's a better covenant. Jeremiah 31, 33 says, part of this covenant is I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. There's this new covenant promise that that we see being fulfilled that James speaks of, that the word of God now has been implanted within me. This is the fulfillment of this new covenant. You and I are a part of this new covenant. It's no longer just this nation of Israel. You and I now are God's new covenant people, God's word implanted in our hearts. And so James speaks of scripture as a means of grace for sanctification. Means of grace means, it's a kind of a theological term, but but it means it's the way God does it. It's the tool that God used. It's the means by which God delivers his grace. So, so it's one of the ways he grows us. And this is why we take preaching very, very seriously here in this church. Preaching doesn't exist to entertain us. It doesn't even exist to inspire us. It's not merely to inform us or to educate us, although it does do that. It's designed to transform us by God's grace. It is the Word of God that God uses not only to save us, but to change us, to transform us into His likeness. And so we're not to come on a Sunday morning and be passive listeners or spectators of God's Word. That doesn't mean that we want you all just shouting out directives while we preach, uh, but it means that we don't come on a Sunday morning as those who, who desire to be entertained. We don't come to sort of be amused or, I hope I learned something today. We should come on a Sunday morning hungry to be fed with the word of truth. Expecting to have our lives transformed. Looking for sanctification. For, for being grown in Christ-likeness and in godliness. Aware that, that this, this together, what we're doing right now is a means of grace that is a gift to us from God. And not only is it a means of grace, it's a necessary one. It's one that we need if we're going to live faithful Christian lives. And so we're not just called to be passive hearers of the Word of God. We're called to be hearers who live the Word of God, who live it out. That's what true faith does. It, it doesn't just hear, 
It lives the word of God. Verse 22, be a doer of the word, not a hearer only, deceiving yourself. Now, James didn't come up with this idea. This whole section is a pure ripoff from Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. James just lifted it. He didn't even put a citation in that we know of. He just took it. Be doers, not just hearers of the word of God. He describes this person who's just a hearer, verse 23. If anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, or looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. And so, so he hears the word of God and then he forgets what God said in the word. Now, forgets me, doesn't mean like you literally forget. So we're not supposed to give ourselves a pass because we didn't literally forget the words that were in there. Forget means it doesn't make any impact. It makes no impact. He reads God's word. He might even agree with God's word and believe God's word, but it makes no impact on his life. It never affects his heart. It never affects his character and his behavior. And James would say to us, if that's you, you're fooling yourself. If that's you, you're fooling yourself. On the other hand, verse 25, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So the doer lives by the word of God. And so in this person, God is doing what he promised in Jeremiah 31. He is writing this word on his heart. As James says in verse 21, it's been implanted within him. And so the word then that's been implanted in him is constantly reminding him of his need for forgiveness. Of the need for God's provision, or of God's provision of that forgiveness. So, so God's people are keenly aware of our need for forgiveness. And that doesn't lead us to condemnation. It leads us to remember this word that's implanted in our heart that tells us God has provided for the forgiveness that you need. That, that's what God's people do. Of God's righteous, holy character and of our need to live according to that righteousness. So we are walking in this implanted word that's within us. I, I, I had this moment this morning, this song that, that we'll sing after the sermon this morning. We were singing it in practice. I've been singing for a long time, it feels like. I've been leading worship for a lot of years and sang a lot of songs and had a lot of practices. And a lot of times with practice, you're just trying to make sure the wheels don't come off the cart be honest. On a Sunday morning, there's a lot going on. We're just trying to make sure. Let's not have any disasters. And we were singing this song that we're going to close the sermon with, and I was overcome. I I stepped away from the microphone. I was a little embarrassed and a little emotional at these words that we sang, because this is what the implanted word does in us. It not only makes us aware of our sin, it makes us aware of the remedy. And folks, that is gloriously good news. Man, after this week preparing this sermon, just feeling like, how can I even preach this? How can I even preach such a strong call to holiness? Such a a threatening word about living lives that aren't in keeping with God's word and what that actually means for us. How can I preach that when I know how weak I am, when I know how sinful I am, and to be met with God's presence in his Holy Spirit reminding me it's because of the blood of Christ that you can do it. That's the Christian life. That's what God does in the life of a Christian. And so our obedience to God's word is a diagnostic of our spiritual condition, of the validity of our claim to have saving faith. It's a test of whether you really have placed your trust in Christ. 
The test is this. If you have saving faith, you obey his word, especially when it's hard. Especially when it runs counter to our desires. We obey God's word. That's how we know whether we're a hearer or a doer of the word. True saving faith not only hears the word of God, it does the word of God. James has more to say to us in his diagnosis of, of true faith or false faith. In verses 26 and 27, that brings us to the, the third thing James is saying to us. True saving faith results in personal holiness and public morality. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. So true faith, then, is expressed in our inner life and in outward signs. In our inner life and outward signs. And so in these two verses, James gives us three more indicators of the reality of our faith. He says, look at your tongue, look at your compassion, and look at your separation from the world. So so again, James points to the tongue. He points to our speech as a measure of our faith. He again here is echoing Jesus, who said, out of the abundance of the heart, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What we say is directly related to, to what's in our heart. And so our speech, our self-control, or our lack of self-control, is a manifestation of what is in our heart. So James says, if you don't control your tongue, you're fooling yourself. Now this is painful for many of us to hear. There's few things harder to control than our tongues. There's so many things we want to say all the time. And it's so hard for us to control our tongues. And James would remind us that that is an indication of a heart issue. How hard it is for me to remain silent when I want to shoot somebody down. That's an indication of my heart. It's an indication of a heart problem. And then he says our compassion is an indication of grace in our hearts. Now this is often not a strong area for evangelicals. And, and I mean particularly evangelicals who still believe that God's word is the pure, inerrant truth from God. Because there's a lot of people who call themselves evangelicals uh, who I would say you're not an evangelical because you don't believe that. But it's been a tough area for us because... Uh, liberal theology, I'm not talking about liberal politics, although it's often related, liberal theology generally is about a social gospel. This sort of like, your Christianity is all about doing nice things for other people and being super sweet and loving. And so we, we shy away from it a little bit. We've been a little afraid to talk about it. We've been a little suspicious when people start talking about the mandate for compassion because, is this person a liberal? I don't, where are they coming from here? And, and so James here, though, is very concerned about compassion. James says our compassion is an indication of whether we have genuine faith or not. And James is not trying to replace the gospel with social justice. He's showing us the implications of the gospel. Because the gospel is true, you will do this. That's James's message. James's message isn't, you'll be saved by doing this. James's message is always, because you've been saved, 
you will do this. And if you don't do it, you have good reason to question your salvation. That's an important distinction. Christianity, though, it is personal, but it's not private. It could never be private. A Christianity that's private is not a real, true Christianity. It's, it's something else. There is an external dimension to it. There's a social dimension to it. John Calvin said our Christianity is shown by self-denial, compassion, and well-doing to neighbors. Now, theological liberalism gets this exactly backwards. It makes compassion. It makes good works. It makes kindness the cause of our salvation. We're saved by doing these things. It's the point of everything. But James says, no, it's a fruit of your salvation. You see, kindness, compassion, social justice, feeding the poor, taking care of people, being loving to all kinds of people, irrespective of their gender or their sexual preference or all those things, that, that's not the gospel. It is a fruit of the gospel. We will do those things if we have saving faith. See, saving faith is a tree that always grows a certain kind of fruit. And James is calling us, look at the fruit that's growing on your tree, and that'll tell you what kind of tree you got. And so, liberalism gets it backwards by saying, by, by, by looking at the fruit hanging off the tree and saying, that's everything. The Bible says, no, look at the tree. Look at what kind of tree you are. Because if you're an apple tree and you want to be an orange tree, just nailing oranges to your branches is not going to last very long. You've got to be the right kind of tree. And so that's what the Bible points us to. That's what James points us to. So he says it's a fruit of salvation, but it is a necessary fruit. In other words, if your tree doesn't grow this kind of fruit, you got the wrong tree. It is a necessary fruit. So if you want to know if you have genuine faith, James says, look at your compassion. What does your compassion say about you? One area this hits home a lot, especially for conservative folks, is when we look at issues of immigration. We look at, we have, let's be honest, it's in the news right now. One of the areas we see compassion, this is not a statement about how we should feel about what our president did this week. I'm just saying, what's your heart's posture towards illegal immigrants. What's your heart's posture towards them? That will tell you something about your faith. I'm not talking about political maneuvering. What is your heart's posture towards those human people? And that will tell you something about your faith. Also, what the president did was wrong. Okay. Good. Why do I? I'm a ruiner in a lot of ways. Uh, finally, he says this. Our resistance of worldliness, and that would be both in our hearts and in our actions, is evidence of true faith. Our resistance of worldliness. See, true faith is both internal and external. Internally, we embrace the truth. We have a transformed heart. We have a, a love for God we did not once have. Externally, we're called to live in personal holiness and public morality. Uh, the words that we speak, the relationships that we have, the compassion that we show. And so there's no such thing. James wants us to see this really clearly throughout the whole book. There's no such thing as the new birth that is not accompanied by the new life. 
Those two things always go together. And sometimes you hear people talk about it like this, and they say, I've made Jesus my Savior, I just haven't made him my Lord. Well, you got good cause to doubt whether he's your Savior. Jesus Christ is Lord. It's not a decision you get to make. Jesus Christ is Lord. So what they mean by that is, I want to go to heaven, but I'm not going to be obedient to anything the Bible says. I still want the title Christian. James says, you are lying to yourself, and it would be unloving to let you continue in that lie. There's no such thing as the new birth that's not accompanied with the new life. There's no such thing as justification. My sins have been forgiven. That's not accompanied by sanctification. I am growing in Christ-likeness. They always go together. There's no such thing as genuine faith without obedience because faith works. True faith works. That's what James is all about. True faith produces something in the life of the believer. And so James doesn't want anyone to think that they're a Christian if they really aren't. That would include us this morning. James, throughout all of history of the church, doesn't want anyone to think they're a Christian if they're not, and that means us too. James does not want you to think you're a Christian if you're not one. Now, that's not being mean. That's not being judgmental. It's being incredibly loving. It is an unloving thing. This is one of the biggest problems with this whole discussion about if you oppose these certain sinful activities that the Bible lays out, if you oppose them, you're unloving and you're hateful and you're a bigot, when the truth is, if what the Bible says is true, there's nothing more unloving than to excuse that kind of stuff. There's churches all over this country who, in the name of love, are telling people that they are living lives of sin that the Bible says will send them to hell, and they say, we want to affirm you because we want to love you. That's so hateful. It's the most hateful thing a church could do. It's wicked. It's evil. James is not being mean to us here. James is not being harsh with us. James is showing us incredible love by telling us, you might be fooling yourself. You should look. You should examine the fruit that's growing on your tree. What a loving, gracious thing to do. It would be cruel to let people continue in their self-deception. The problem is, when, when, when a person is self-deceived in this way, they're a false convert, they have false faith instead of genuine saving faith, the problem with that person who, who's walking in that deception is they're, they're almost deaf to the gospel. You could come to this church week after week after week and by God's grace hear the gospel preached faithfully every week and it just kind of rolls off you because you assume you're okay. You're deaf to it. It would be a cruel thing to leave people in that kind of self-deception. James wants us to have ears to hear the gospel. And so James is not shy about telling us that we might be deceived. It seems so mean. It seems so mean to say that. I mean, maybe, maybe you're here and you're like, I didn't know this church was so hateful, but I'm glad I know now. I'll never come back. It seems mean, and James isn't afraid to say it. James will say it all kinds of ways throughout this book. So if you're offended by this, you'll have a great time with the rest of the weeks because he's going to say it over and over and over again. You better examine the fruit that's growing on your tree. He's not afraid to say it. He's not afraid to tell us that our faith might not be real. He's not afraid to tell us that we might be fooling ourselves. 
If that's the case, it should cause in us some measure of humility. What a, what a profoundly arrogant thing to have God's word, to have Paul say, examine yourself, see if you're in the faith. To have James say, you might be lying to yourself, and then to arrogantly sit there and go, not me, I'm not even examining. And I'm offended that you told me to. What a crazy, arrogant thing to do. If that's the response of our heart, that's fruit growing off our tree. It should cause us to question what kind of tree we've got. James is not afraid to say that, so we shouldn't be afraid to say it either. And we shouldn't be afraid to do it because God's Word does not cause us to this endless speculation about, man, I guess I'm not saved. Every day I'm going to ask Jesus into my heart over and over and over again. God's Word never calls us to do that. God's Word calls us, put all of your trust in Jesus all of it, none of it in yourself, and then examine your life, and you will see that you are being transformed into his likeness. You are not the person you used to be, and you will know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God saved you. That's incredible. We shouldn't be afraid to ask this question. God, God, God will hold us up. I, I believe in, in no way at all, in fact, I think it is abominable, to say that a person can have genuine saving faith, that God made a dead person alive, and then you can lose that. I think that's an abomination. I think it's wicked. And you might be in here going, oh, I believe that. Well, the Bible doesn't believe that. The Bible never tells us that. The Bible says God will keep you afloat. If he made you alive, you really are alive. We don't have to be afraid to ask these questions. The big question is, were you fooling yourself for a lot of years? Were you fooling yourself for a lot of years? That's the question that we should be asking, and we shouldn't be afraid to ask that because when God confirms to you that you are his, there's nothing sweeter than that. How sweet it is. I've been preaching for 20 years, and again this morning, God confirmed to me, you are mine. And it's overwhelming, and it's beautiful, and it's sweet. And it gives me a, a courage and it gives me a steadfastness in my life. Every time I have that sweet moment of self-examination and I come through to the other end where God confirms you are mine. And though you try, you won't get away because I'm stronger than you. That's the, these are the glories of the Christian life. These are the things that when trials come our way, we go, this stinks, but I got this over here and this is way better. What could compare to that? What could drag that down? I'll face this trial with joy. Maybe not with giddiness. Maybe not with heel clicks. Like a happy little leprechaun or something. But with a deeply rooted joy that says, God holds me in his hand. And if that's true, he means this for my good. That's what examining ourselves does for us. And so we need to respond to God's word with the utmost of seriousness. Worship team, if you want to make your way up here, 